Alberto Jarosa is a filmmaker and performance artist based out of Hong Kong. This is Alberto Jarosa. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Duncan. All right, I'm here with Alberto Jarosa. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we were literally just talking about this, but I wanted to ask you on the air. Um, you're in this performance space now. Can, can you talk about the fact that it's that it's illegal? If not, we can cut this part out. But the, this theater that you've you've established, what what's going on here? It's in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the most expensive city in the world according to real estate prices, and it has been for a long time. Originally, this was a really migrant society where. Most of the people were refugees, first from mainland China and then from many other parts of the world, including also Vietnam after the war. So in any given year in the history of Hong Kong, actually a very large chunk of the population did not have a house, did not have anything at all. Some even came swimming. So the rooftops of the buildings became naturally, especially in the areas that were less affluent, full of slums. The price of the land is so expensive that sometimes you would make slums on top of buildings. Mm. And then if you see and you Google uh, Hong Kong rooftop house, then you will see many, many images of this. And because Hong Kong is currently in what is called uh, the um, one country, two system um, arrangement, which starts in 97 and finishes in 2047. It has been referred to many times as borrowed time, borrowed land. I think this is also literally the uh, title of a book, but many, or also aesthetic of disappearance has been used to describe this kind of place. So uh, finding this illegal rooftop structure in a place that in 2013 did not have any independent cinema because only large real estate conglomerates can own distributors or cinemas was for me uh, a chance to maybe create one theater that would be outside of any kind of um, relation of interest or power relation. And of course, the downside is that, you know, the aircon is bad, when it rains too much, it rains on the projector. Uh, we can't host too many people. But nonetheless, we were able to have a programming that was really quite um, free, let's say. And uh, also, we provided this community, which is Samsepo, it's the poorest area in Hong Kong, with a cinema. This community did not have a cinema for a few decades. And uh, of course, starting with cinema, we very soon transformed into cinema plus music plus theater plus performance. And so in the end, it became um, a place that did so many activities. And, uh, you know, just this aesthetic or poetic side of it, the fact of being inside this structure, which is in itself illegal. So my landlord has already received a order of destruction okay. from, the, from the government, not because of some specific issue with this house, just simply because it's one of the countless illegal structures. And of course, progressively, the government will take care of each of them one by one. This is in the back alley, so it's less visible and less um, urgent. The order is already a few years uh, ago and they haven't enforced it, but anytime they could. Yeah. Okay. So a few things I want to ask about that. Um, I mean, you, you've done, people don't know, you're, you're uh, performance artist, filmmaker, etc. cetera. Um, and you, you've done things where you're sort of violating the rules of a space. Like you, you went into Art Basel without the proper, I think you forged the, doc, the documents to, to be there. But in this case, this is, this feels much more serious. I mean, people at our Basel may give you a, a fine or a ticket, but I, I don't know, like it, it, in Hong Kong, is this, uh, how risky is this? I think um, it's as simple as someone with a garden builds a structure that is not permitted and then is forced to destroy it. 
Okay. So like, let's say your illegal garage that was turned into a two rooms apartment that you rent to your cousin, right? Something like that. Of course, that's the risk on the side of the location and why it's poetic and aesthetic. Then there is, of course, the risk of the content. Much of the stuff you might uh, want to show or screen uh, in Hong Kong is nowadays um, not always legal, but that's another, another issue. So that is an issue that I think any kind of cultural venue in Hong Kong is sharing. Were you in Hong Kong during the, the protests recently? Sure. Yeah. W- w- did that affect uh, your art practice at all? Besides just like being a person living here, um, did, did this space change in response to these protests or no? Mm, Hong Kong is a very packed uh, urban conglomerate with more than 7 million people. And so during the 2019 protest, progressively the protests became weekly. There was a protest or two every weekend, sometimes more. So during those times, so many cultural venues were closed because there simply would be no audience. Everyone was on the street or trying to get off the streets. So, you know, on one side, logistically, entire areas were hard to access. Uh, Metro stations would be closed for hours. You know, a lot of things made it that in the end, we all didn't program anything for months. And also on the emotional side, so much of the programs that you might have planned months in advance suddenly didn't make any sense in the current situation. Or suddenly, you know, they, they seemed out of touch. Mm-hmm. There was so many more urgent things that everyone was taking care of, you know, that um, it's, uh, it's everything else becomes less of a priority. There has never been, for example, a um, full retrospective on stun brackage or stun brackage. How you? I don't know how you pronounce it uh, in English. And I prepared that, and then I just called it off. I just thought this is this is not uh, the moment for that. But that's one choice that I have heard from so many other. Mm, art spaces, artist-run spaces, galleries, museums, etc. What, what is Stan Brockage or Brockage? Oh, it's an experimental American filmmaker. Very big. You can Google him. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I, I'm. What drew you to Hong Kong in the first place? Because the, there seems like um, I'm less familiar with the art scene in Hong Kong, um, but I know that like the literary scene in China, for not like recently, but maybe like ten to twenty years ago back when China was hosting the, the Olympics, uh, around that time, th- there was still a censorship, um, but it was weak enough that art could, could come through. Like um, that, that sci-fi series, uh, The Three-Body Problem. I, I think the author of that said, oh, it probably wouldn't get published today. Um, so what, is that, was there a time and place that drew you to Hong Kong in the first place? Or, or like, what are you doing here? Hmm. <laughs> I'm born and raised in a small city in Italy near the Lake Como. And uh, I left pretty early because I wanted to visit at that time uh, different places that could show me different ways of living or coexisting. So the first thing I went to, it was easy enough. I got a scholarship to go to Northern Europe and I spent some time there Coming from Italy, Northern Europe is very different because it's much less conservative. They believe in the West, uh, welfare state, and a lot of different things that were totally new for me. Then I found a job online for Shanghai, and I'm 19 at that point. I go there, and the job is a scam. I was supposed Mm -hmm. to be the guy who's selling advertisements on the back of magazines, for brands. And instead I was the receptionist for a gay sauna. And I was hired because I'm white. 
At that time, this is called a, monkey, a white monkey job, which means at that time in China, white people would get the most random uh, jobs because it was fancy to have a white colleague sitting at a meeting, or it was fancy to have a white person pretending to be interested in buying an apartment in front of other clients. You know, these kind of um, early 2000s were, um, had this possibility. And um, through that, actually, I, you know, I dropped that job. I got another job. I was assistant in an art center. I helped them with the application for the Venice Biennale because they needed a translating. And then we won, we got in. So I was sent back to Venice as the translator and guide for all these artists who had to install and everything. And then the first day in Venice, we get the taxi boat, sorry, we get like the public transport boat, which is a sort of metro in Venice, which works with boats. And I said, no, come on, this is Italy. We don't need to buy any ticket, right? It's, uh, this is a free country, whatever. And then of course the police guy is there and says tickets and we get each uh, 100 euro fine because we don't have tickets. So after that, I still had great memories and uh, great uh, experiences that I remembered from China. And I was always interested to go back, but I couldn't for a while. I studied in Slovenia for a year. And then I also worked in New York for a while, but I had to leave. And then uh, finally, I found a way to come back. And Hong Kong was um, interesting because um, it was easier to move here. Many people from the West would tell you it's easier, uh, or at least in the past, to move here than to mainland China. And then I was here, I got a scholarship to do a PhD, and then I did one year exchange in Tokyo University, so that was in Japan. And then I came back here, and somehow I think um, I was looking for a city where the, let's say the melting pot was not uh, American centric. Yeah. Because of course you could go to New York, that's a melting pot, that's a place where everyone can become a local, I guess, over time. But, you know, the US cultural hegemony is undeniable and uh, you are right at the center, you know, of uh, these kind of contemporary art systems. Uh, cultural production is very, very uh, influenced by that center. So I wanted to find maybe another center, another pole. I don't think we are living in a time where there is a specific avant-garde that the rest of the world is following anymore. I think we have different gravitational centers across the globe. And I was uh, drawn to Hong Kong as a uh, unique place where different influence and force are uh, pulling in different directions. And I think the protest is an example of that. Yeah, getting, getting away from just like being in, in I, I noticed this as someone, I, I've been on the road for the past like three years traveling and I'll be like on, on like a rooftop in a restaurant in India and these dudes will start playing like Britney Spears songs. And it's like, come on, man. Like, you know, it's hard in some ways to, it feels like you can almost like never leave America no matter where you go. So it's, I, I can totally see the value in that. Um, you mentioned in there the, the Venice taxis and being like, ah, we don't need tickets. Then, you know, we started off here talking about, ah, this, this is an illegal premises. Uh, one of the early sort of like art pieces that you had done um, was when you were like an art handler at some gallery and you're insta installing some film and you, you scratched the, the celluloid and sort of as like a, a comment on how a lot of this like labor that goes into producing this art for the public is, is just unseen. Um, is there something that draws you? Because I, I feel this way sometimes. Is there something that draws you to like uh, transgressing? I think it comes from my background with street art, with graffiti. In 2022, if you think about art 
and the form, the aesthetic uh, form and practices, the way of being really nicely cooperating with some large institutions without questioning the power relations at place that make that very exhibition possible, for me is outdated. It's obsolete. If you run an institution and you um, contact me and invite me to present in your institution, and I know maybe your institution is getting money from somewhere shady, or maybe your institution does not really uh, respect, celebrate, or honor the people working for it, or maybe I know that your institution is uh, pulling the um, cultural power it has in a direction that I'm not comfortable with. I know tons of artists that would just ignore that and get the chance, get the opportunity, get the check, do the show and go on. That's good for CV, but I don't, I don't see any way how that, of course, could be called ethical, but more importantly, because ethical is very subjective, I don't see any way of how that can be called contemporary. Uh, I know, uh, for example, you know, when, when the Pope was contracting Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel, he expressly said, no nudes. And Michelangelo painted a beautiful Sistine Chapel. It takes him so much time. Everyone knows he lost his sight, etc. When the Pope finally is allowed to get in at the end because the doors were closed, everyone was naked. Yeah. That's, I don't think, hypocrite on the side of Michelangelo. I think that's, given the situation, is the best he could have done. And then the Pope hired another painter whose job has been to draw uh, sort of cloths to cover everyone's, um, you know, nakedness. And that guy is famous only for painting that. His name is Braghettone in the history of art. That means a big uh, pants guy or big aunties guy. So it's, mm, I would say, you know, the system itself and the institutions themselves sometimes because of necessity push artists or people in cooperation with them to um, accept compromise. And I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. So my practice sometimes starts from a position of being invited, sometimes starts in a, from a position of non being invited. And I think I lost the difference anymore. I don't think if you are representing US in Venice, or if you are a US artist outside of the Venice gate, putting something on the floor, right? Just like a street vendor. I don't think there is a difference anymore. And for the history of art, there is a certain power that the institution will have over time to decide what goes into the canon of that period. But that's not the only power. There's tons of opportunities for big and smaller subversion every day. And I think everyone, no matter which position they are in, they can tap into that quite easily. And also this idea of the canon is breaking down, particularly when what we have with the internet, basically anyone who posts something to the internet, you, you get a little taste of immortality. Even if you, know, you get a few thousand views over the course of 10 years, that, that's something, that's more than you know, most anonymous artists working in, you know, the ancient world will ever get. It's more credit than they'll ever receive. And so I, I really like that approach because these, these gatekeepers, and it's not just in the art world, but it's in the political world, it's in the world of media. They feel as though they still have the same authorities they had in like 1920. And they just don't because the media or the, the information like ecosystem is so much different. Um, like I heard about, I, I probably would not have heard about you were it not for the internet, you know? Um, do, do you, when, when you're going into these spaces, um, it seems like particularly in the world of visual art, so much of 
that world is just like really corrupted by money um, in a way that like the, the world of, you know, art music and literature it just is not. Like, I don't know too many um, $100 million authors. They exist, but they're, they are rare. They're rare in the art world, but a person like Damien Hirst is considered like a great artist and has hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, did, did, do you ever get frustrated with that? I mean, these subversions that you're doing, do you think that they're having any effect? Mm, there's a beautiful uh, story about if a tree falls in the forest and no one heard it falling, did it really fall, right? I think um, it depends on the time frame you are referencing to. If you look at your own today or this lifetime time frame, it's hard to see your agency in a concrete and positive way. And you might feel, oh, it didn't make a big change. But if you look in the longer term, let's say you see um, a couple of thousand years, then how bigger is Damien Hirst than your podcast? Is it really bigger? How bigger, right? When we look at the micro level from outside, everyone seems like doing pretty simpler thing. I might have a bigger or smaller material potential, but at the end of the day, everyone is doing similar things. So I don't uh, deny or I don't despise the whole system altogether. I think that would be too easy and also uh, childish. And at the same time, I don't attack in a way that is bitter or that is like a protest because sometimes that falls into propaganda and I th don't think that's art. I think art is much more independent, but at the same time can frontally um, relate or uh, attack or engage institutions and ideas. And so there is some irony uh, that must be there, a sort of distance. I cannot take myself too seriously and say, I'm an activist artist. Next to me, someone is using that institution playing by the rule book and I'm not in any way cleaner or more anything than that guy. I am just simply doing another version of an artistic practice. So there's tons of artists that are very successful and gallery darling, and maybe I love them. No problem for me. It's just that I think it's not so contemporary to pretend the conditions that make your art possible and the fruition of your art possible is not contemporary to ignore it in the work. I think the work should uh, completely um, discuss that and not in a flat protest way. Yeah, yeah, the, the flat protest, um, the, the way I've, I've sometimes put it to myself is like I, I'm, uh, by profession, I'm an engineer. And in that world, like you're really all about getting answers. And in the world of art, uh, it's like more about like sort of framing the question in, in an elegant way. And anytime like art has like answers, it, um, I don't know, even if I agree with the answers, it just like rubs me the wrong way. Cause it's like, I'd rather, <clears throat> I'd rather like read an essay or something like that about this than, than like a painting or a novel. Because at least in an essay, you could, you could cite sources and, you know, build up arguments, et cetera. So I just feel like ours is not like the vehicle to make uh, whatever statement it is you want to make. So on that note, what is it that you are trying to do? Like, do you have a goal as an artist? Uh, are, are you just like, you know, blowing whatever bubbles, you know, strike your, strike your fancy or um, you have like a specific ambition or, or what is it that drives you here? Talking personally, I think it's hard for me to really pull out one motive that drives me. And I 
maybe don't even um, agree with that interpretation of art that starts from that artist is responding to such and such trauma, to such and such social inequality. I think that kind of talk is marketing. For me, um, the larger purpose that drives artists, at least artists that I consider genuine artists, is simply the enlargement of the form. So the language of art, which could be film, music, whatever, or also just the contemporary aesthetic language, has some limits which are as large as anything relevant that was made so far. And I think any great artist is pushing that. In a simple example, the first guy who made a color movie did that. But also the same, uh, also the first guy who took seriously the canvas and said, I cut the canvas. It's not about what's on canvas, it's about the canvas itself and what's through it. That's another example. So I think each artist will just, you know, with a mixture of things, choose in which direction they push the form larger and then they push. In engineering, it's not um, so different. And I think when we see the scientific world very, very separated from the uh, artistic or humanistic knowledge, that's a big mistake and a contemporary mistake that answers the uh, need to have everyone in small boxes, which is one of, I would say, the mistakes in knowledge production and sharing in our era. I think actually the technological development, the artistic development, even the religious development, all of these things are very connected and they, and they talk to each other and over time they just enlarge our human potential. So I would say that's the uh, aim and the social or political relevance of some of my performances is just as served to that purpose. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, the, the art and engineering slash sciences are definitely not separate because even like every form of art requires some amount of engineering to come into existence. Like uh, pianos do not just drop from the sky. You know, they have to be built. Um, and I, you need to have enough space to store one if you want to practice. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I'm curious about this, this thing you're pointing out about the enlargement of the form. Um, because in, say, like engineering, there is, you know, uh, cars do get faster. You know, computers can hold more memory. And, you know, someone wouldn't buy a computer from the 1980s, whereas they might look at or enjoy a work of art from the 1650s. Um, and not as like a novelty, but as, as like a work of art in and of itself. Um, I, I'm curious. Um, it seems like the trend, particularly in, in Western art, is or has been not just in uh, visual art, but in like poetry and music from going from like a rules-based order to like breaking down those rules of like in music, went from like having keys, to like atonality or like in painting, like uh, real life representation to, you know, pure abstraction uh, or as you pointed out, like cutting the canvas. Um, I wonder if perhaps we're at a point now where we have, like there's that famous Picasso quote of like destruction is also a creative act or something like that. Um, I wonder if we've destroyed enough and if we're just like stomping on the ruins now. Um, do, do you feel that way at all? Or is there still more to deconstruct or how exactly are we enlarging the possibilities? I think it's an interesting point because every society has different taboos and every society, even the same society, will have different taboos at different times. So who decides when it's enough? I would say placing the point of view on the side of the people that are most subaltern or placing the point of view on the side of the people that are facing most inequality could give you as a compass or as a barometer, a good understanding of whether or not we have broken enough. 
There's a famous quote by an Italian journalist. I don't even like that journalist, but this quote was good. And he said, when I look at a witch hunt, I just spontaneously tend to take the side of the witch. Because, mm. you know, there is a stronger player, a, Dave, uh, a Goliath, and then there is a David. And I think if you just automatically always take that side and see how does it look from that point of view, ask these people, share with them this um, decision, I would say then you would know whether we have broken enough because a lot of stuff is not relevant to you, but it's relevant to me. Who's right? I would say the one with less power. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, although I do think there's there can be a difference between saying like uh, clearly there are things that we need to break down apart from like these formal you know rules like the when you talk about inequality like that um, that manifests itself in the world of art but um, maybe it's like fundamentally a social problem that we we break these things down socially and so uh, do you think that that same process of breaking down these social economic hierarchies uh, can also lend itself to like new interesting forms of art, like new twists on, uh, on old mediums. Like will, will breaking down inequality create like a new aesthetic development in painting or something like that? Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, it is said that uh, Picasso invented cubism after visiting an ethnographic exhibition of uh, um, statues from Africa that were sculpted with a different idea of three dimensions. And that's maybe where the idea of cubism uh, was from. Picasso also said bad artists copy and good artists steal. So that in that case, what did he do? Did he break conventions of our Western, very narrow understanding of representational painting? And did he as a genius, did he have a genius idea? Did he steal it and never gave credit? Never gave credit? Or did he normally just got an inspiration and follow uh, up on that? That created a change, that created a big change. Yeah. And uh, I would say it's an example of how unexpected these um, influences are. I don't think we can expect or predict where these things come from. We can just take what's out there and see which one is relevant and which one um, more useful, more powerful, more inspiring for the future. And then over time, we'll see who will uh, stand uh, last Do you? Because, it, yeah. because it became, um, more relevant to that specific community. The whole of the very engaging narrative and history of the Western art is completely ignoring of the rest of the world. That's already a fact. Yeah. And okay. num number wise, Western people are not that many, so. Right, yeah. And, and even like certain like developments that are considered like groundbreaking and like Western art uh, of, of flattening the canvas, for instance, were going on and like, you know, Asian art for centuries um, beforehand. And like a lot of like inspiration came from like Japanese art, et cetera. Um, do you, I, I'm, I'm less like tied in to the art world. I'm very curious about it. I think it's really cool. Um, I consider it to be a big part of my life, um, but it, it's, not, it's not my chosen, it's not my profession by which I, I earn my bread, so to speak. And it, it feels like maybe, like I, I, I want to use, um, you, you had made a film uh, called Dia, am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, and I, I read this article about it in Variety where it's this film about uh, foreign domestic workers, I, I believe in Hong Kong. And it, in this article, like they took care to mention the fact that um, it, it was, you know, quoting this, this Asian-focused female-centric narrative was directed by a white man. 
and I almost when I read that sentence, I could hear like the music, like bum bum bum. Like, what is? Uh, and and then one of your colleagues, I suppose, said something like, um, "In these days of identity politics, Alberto sometimes feels like a sore thumb." Do, do you feel like a sore thumb, or, or what is? What no, is that was a quote. That was a quote that I think that was an interesting article because they make an article with my name without contacting me. <laughs> so, and also they make an article about a movie, perhaps not talking about that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sure, I know uh, that article exists. I think it's interesting that um, the, um, the same movie takes a completely different uh, meaning and it's interpreted completely differently according to who made it. I remember early on when we were trying to find uh, distributor or or representation for that film, I remember a French distributor said, I'm fine with distributing this film provided that we take out your name as a director and we put the name of the uh, domestic workers who actually did the workshop and worked uh, with you to create the script. Because inside of this very empowering women um, narrative of, you know, reappropriating the medium of cinema for this social uh, injustice issue, etc. The white guy in the middle, just marketing wise, looks completely out of place and out of touch. Right. And uh, so we thought about that for a while. And then ultimately I thought it will be a lie. How could I go around with that movie pretending the responsibility of the final uh, director choices were really only on the domestic workers when it was actually sometimes more a dialogue? That would be really a lie. And I know it's great for marketing, but how... Mm -hmm. Could I lie in that way? Can you imagine someone criticizing the movie and saying, oh, these directors did this so bad, and then it's not my name, there is someone else, and then they are blamed for something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So the choice ultimately was to say the truth and to say that the script was written by domestic workers, and then the whole process was uh, shared anthropology, so it was really following a lot of steps in order to create a collective vision, but then we didn't want to uh, line that way. So that's, I think, interesting to see how, uh, regardless in in this case about the movie, um, sometimes the legitimacy to tell a story is important. At times even maybe more important than uh, the actual story. What do you mean the legitimacy to tell a story? For example, you could uh, invite me to visit you for half an hour and I can make a documentary about you in half an hour. And that's very superficial. And then people are watching it and thinking that's really you. No, that's you half an hour, two weeks ago, right? So if you make a documentary about yourself, then it's much more um, organic. Yeah. This is, I would say, a level of compromise that somehow in media production it's always um, present. But it doesn't mean we should lie inside of it or we should ignore it. How, how did the, uh, the women you were making the movie with feel about this? We spoke about this many times. We had three cuts of the film and they had sort of... Um, control and voice in every stage of production. So the script was the result of this nine months improv laboratory where everyone was acting out scenes from their migration. The scenes that seemed more uh, relevant or strong to the group ended up in the script. And then we shot in locations that were agreed collectively. We choose actresses that were agreed collectively Uh, Many of the people that participated in the workshop actually acted in co-protagonist roles. 
when the rough cut was ready, uh, we had, I think it was three uh, sessions where uh, together we watch it, we take notes, we change some things, we made uh, drastic changes both to the storyline and to the way scenes were presented until the last cut was making everyone happy. And that was the final one that became public. Mm. Yeah, it, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting phenomenon. I heard about something similar in the publishing world where there was um, a Filipino man, a Filipino American guy who wrote a novel about um, based off of a, a, a an African-American friend of his who he had known since like growing up. And when he was shopping it around, publishers really wanted it. And then until they found out his identity and they were, then they started asking him to make all these changes. And it, it was on his part, it was curious because it was like, okay, you read this the first time you thought it was this great exploration. And then now you're, you're sort of questioning every little piece and saying, Oh, is this, truly accurate are you you know are, are you being voyeuristic here all these things and it does it does change one's perspective as a viewer depending on who made you know the the work of art um but i don't know D does it ever feel um do you feel like that distributor that you were talking about um do you think they were doing it they, they were asking you to do that for like an ethical reason like oh we think that you just your name just doesn't belong on this or primarily as like marketing money wise. Oh, they declared it very openly marketing. Yeah. And they, they were not ashamed of it. And I don't think uh, they should be their profit company. And they just try to pick up movies that they know they could um, at the same time do a social job, but also break even. I, I didn't hate them for it, they just uh, uh, show the symptom of an industry that um, needs uh, cash in, you know, cinema is a very expensive art form. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Do you, do you, is part of the reason you do performance art because unlike, uh, I don't know, like painting, which feels kind of like captured by like rich people sort of speculating on this art or cinema, which is like really difficult to get off the ground Performance art feels like very free. Yes, performance art is certainly attached to a more uh, free and also political kind of uh, meaning or background um, behind it. Uh, something I have never been able to understand myself is where does performance art stop and where does theater start? Because as a theater fan, for me, performance art and theater are uh, kind of the same and indistinguishable. But every time I speak to people that are either in one or in the other, they have all these ready-made definitions of why they're not the same. Whereas for me, the ritual and maybe even religious aesthetic primary need that they both answer to is exactly the same. Uh, someone would say, oh, theater is different because you are in a uh, theater setting with a paying ticket and people act a role. Whereas here it's impromptu and I am just myself. I am not a character. But this is stuff theater already done 100 years ago. So <laughs> it's yeah. uh, sometimes a little uh, unnecessary and unmotivated for me to call these things. So... Uh, I mean, to separate these things, but um, I think performance and cinema are really connected and they're also connected to theater. And so I do not feel there is a strong uh, jump when I move from one to another. Most of my artwork are quite ethnographic in the method. So this is shared both by my performances and uh, films and that's why you know they have different names but I will I will feel probably exactly in both. Interesting yeah um, the, and that kind of uh, the world of cinema though seems much more uh, much less open to spontaneous disruptions 
in a, in a way because it is pre-packaged and then released. Whereas with these performance pieces that you're doing, someone could do like what you did with, you know, scratching on the celluloid. Someone you hire for performance piece could, you know. If you, if you consider the whole spectrum of cinema and the whole spectrum of performance, this is inaccurate because, for example, if you hire the Royal Ballet from London to come and do Romeo and Juliet in your city, yeah. and at the other side, you have a guy who's making a documentary on his parents' daily life, and he's editing it on a laptop, and he downloaded uh, Final Cut Pro from Emu. You know, you understand how cheaper the guy is and how much freer his practice is rather than the Royal yeah. Ballet. So, so many times performances are more expensive and less free than cinema. It just depends which, which movies or which performances within the potential spectrum you decide to look at. Sure, yeah. commercial cinema is hard even to have space for improvisation, but by no means that uh, reflects the whole potential of cinema. Um, we're almost at an hour here and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So just, just as like wrapping up, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you earlier and it kind of relates to what you just said of sort of reminds me of this like street art ethos. Um, do, do you have any, there was an incident where a friend and I were just doing some like graffiti and, um, people came up to us and said like, are you Banksy? And like, it, it just felt so, um, I don't know. It just felt like every street artist gets swallowed by Banksy. Of like, oh man, like that is that Banksy or like, oh dude, that's like something Banksy would do. Like, do do you have any uh, strong opinions on this? Not on the guy, but on this phenomenon. I don't know. Yesterday I watched a meme that said Jackie Chan doing parkour before parkour existed, and there was a list of videos of him jumping out fences and stuff like that in like the 70s you know so parkour gave it a name banksy gave it a name and uh, for a certain more larger mainstream audience these two things have more meaning then the closer you look into something you know the more things you find out i have never been to Chicago, you say you are from Chicago, from outside, the only thing I can see, I don't know if you believe me, but growing up in Italy, the only thing I can see about Chicago is the Red Bull logo of Chicago Bulls. And I have this, this triptych in my head, Jordan, Rodman, and what's the third guy in there? Scotty Pippen. Scotty Pippen. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to say it, but then I thought, no, he's in Orlando. I don't know, whatever. But um, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. I don't know anything else. Of course, if I go there, I'll learn so much about it. Same for street art, same for parkour or however we want to call this uh, jumping uh, architecture practice. Fair enough. Um, do you care about leaving a legacy at all? I... Mm, I think I take very seriously the idea of community within the art. And I guess uh, over time that becomes the shared legacy of whatever is worth mentioning in art history. Mm. And uh, inside of that, of course, uh, there's so many great names that I highly respect. I... Um, I think I could be trying to find something that would have a place in there. I think, uh, and I, I think you have, and will continue to do so. I'm, uh, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, if, if you got 60 seconds after we, we stop recording here, there's something I'd love to tell you about. Um, it was, was semi-inspired by what you do. Um, but before we go, uh, is there anywhere that people can go to uh, explore more of your work? Do you have a website or anything like that? 
I know you, you would put my name and I, I love people being lost on the first page of Google and then they find, oh, variety article. Hey, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give a map to that. I think it's childish to um, put every um, biographical coordinates of an artist as a map to understand their work. I really prefer when the work is completely naked and raw in front of you and you are uh, mesmerized, or at least as an audience of art, that's exactly the feeling of marvel that I long for. And sometimes out of the blue, I see something that very strongly hits me and it could be an art that was there because it's an art or it could be an art that randomly I find into something that is not supposed to be art. And that kind of childish uh, feeling of marvel, you know, is uh, that miracle is, I think, worth. So I don't want to give people too much information and then I might ruin that, you know. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes when you over-interpret the aesthetic experience of um, just experiencing an artwork, for me, there is something uh, weaker. I remember when I was 12, I started to play drum set for a few years. And all I could hear when I was listening to music for pleasure was how good was the drummer. Okay, wow. how, and it, it kind of ruined the thing. I had to move away from that. Yeah, I, I suppose that's, in, in other words, you do not have a website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nice. Uh, well, I'm sure. I'm sure people you interview would say, "Hey, can you mention my website? Hey, can you mention my social media handle? Hey, can you tag me?" No, yeah. opposite. Yeah, that's kind of like how uh, Michelangelo would re- would erase the uh, the studies he would do for his drawings to enhance the mystery. Um, <laughs> well, cool, um, Alberto. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. Thank you to Alberto DeRosa, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.